Well, welcome. Let me add my welcome. My name is Eric Hoffman, executive pastor here, and you all look very rested. And it's a lot, you know, second service, you had your pick of seats because first service you did not because everyone just came because they're already up. So I just wanted to let you know. Um, man, I, I woke up this morning. I, was, I kept checking my clock. And I was like, this is fall back, right? It's not like I'm losing an hour. It's just like, you know, just, you never want to be late, for, especially in a day like this. So uh, I just want to welcome you guys. If, you, if you're a guest with us, we just want to say welcome. Um, on the way out in our lobby, there's a connect point. We'd love for you to stop by just to be able to get to know you, answer any questions about fellowship, of who we are, and just, and just love to be able to meet you in that. And then also on your program, for, this is for all of us, any prayer requests that any of you have, we'd love to pray alongside with you. Our staff, elders, prayer team, we'd love to do that as well. I want to make just one quick announcement. If you've been in the 40 days of prayer as a church, we've been collectively praying the same prayers every morning. And so we're about 28 days into it. And you can text 40 days to 555-888 if you're not opted in on that, and you'll get it every single day. So we'd love to encourage you to do that right now. And then at the end of 40 days, we are going to have an all-night prayer vigil, which will have more info on that as well. Well, when we started this, this series, we went back through our 20-year story at Fellowship, and we kind of told the story of, of how we got to where we are today over these last 20 years. And we kind of used this character arc of showing you kind of what God's been doing in us and, and how he's been shaping us. And the two things that we kind of pulled away from that Sunday were God has been writing our story, and he has always been at work in every part of our story. He's been shaping us. And it's true of you and your story. I mean, think about your story, how much God has shaped you in the difficult seasons, the things where you needed to rely on him the most. It's shaped kind of who you are, some character things in you. And that is true of us. And so this, the second week, we took out of our story of how God has been working in our midst, who are we in light of what God has been doing? That's kind of the core values. Who, what values do we embody as a church because of our story and what we've been doing? So these values are we statements. They're, we own them as a church, collectively as a community of faith. And so I want to put these on the screen as kind of review, and I want you guys to read them with me as we uh, embody these together. We are word-centered. Is it up there yet? No one's reading with me. There we go. We are word-centered, spirit-dependent, better together, courageously real, and not about ourselves. So we want to live these out. These are the DNA, the DNA of our church. We want to live this out. So if, if the values are who we are, then the mission is what we do. And Rob, on week three, did a great job of talking about um, what every, uh, the end and purpose of every human being who's on earth is to glorify God. Every single human being, their purpose on this earth is to glorify God and find their life and satisfaction in Him. And so he drew up a big bullseye and a target. If that's what we're aiming for, every human is doing that. Then what is the church's mission? Like how did, how would we describe the church's mission? Well, the inner ring of that is Jesus gave us the mission of the church to go into all the world and do what? Make disciples. So if every person on the planet is to glorify God, every church on the planet is to do what? Glorify God by making disciples. And then the center of that, the very center of that, is God has given us this church in Williamson County in 2018 
in our local context to live out who he has made our church to be as a community of faith, to live out our local, to see that expressed locally here in Williamson County. And think about that, the significance of, of that in our, in our day and age. I mean, if, think about Williamson County. How many people, again, like I read uh, a couple weeks ago in Money Magazine, that Franklin, Tennessee, top five places to live in the country to pursue. And many of you, how many of you moved here? Almost all of you, right? How many were born and raised? None of you, right? Everyone is a transplant here except Kelly Tillman over there. Okay, so besides, besides Kelly, every one of us were pursuing something here that Williamson County could offer. We were, whether it was schools or career or the grandkids are here or, you know, the, the rolling hills of Tennessee and we want to experience seasons. I mean, it's not wrong, but like everyone is, is searching for something here and we're moving very specifically to Williamson County in Tennessee. And that is the mission field that God has placed us in is, the, is to, to, to minister and make disciples in this area. So if the center of our target is where we locally live out our mission as a church, then this is what we've said our mission statement is as a church, to glorify God and make disciples by helping people find wholehearted life in Jesus. Now there's a part of that phrase that sticks out that we need to kind of un, un, like pull out. What does that mean? What does wholehearted life in Jesus mean? So last week, Lloyd taught through the kind of the theology of the heart, looking at all of Scripture, how is the heart communicated in Scripture? And so he kind of walked us through. The heart does these different things in Scripture, and, and God is focused on the heart. And I, would, I just want to implore you, if you've missed any of these weeks, go back and, on the podcast and listen. But better yet, in Lloyd's, I think Lloyd's is best to be seen. So go on and watch the video at the Brentwood service um, a couple weeks ago. But this is what we said about the heart as looking at all, these, all the Scriptures. The heart is the source of our thoughts, emotions, desires, and choices. The parts of our heart have distinct functions, much like our physical heart. And like our physical heart, if we removed our left atrium, what would happen? We would not be living, right? And so that is what we're saying with, with the, the spiritual heart. We were never meant to live um, with seg segmented parts of our heart. But in the fall, in the garden, our hearts blew apart and we started living compartmentalized lives. Many of us we try to live compartmentalized lives. We say, oh, here's my God box, and here's my work box, and here's my family box. And we were never meant to live life that way. We were meant to live with all of our life being lived with all of who God is, an integrated, united, undivided, whole heart. The word heart is used over a thousand times in Scripture. And in the garden, when we, we talked about the heart blew apart, what is Jesus doing and renewing? The renewing work of Jesus, he's bringing our hearts back together so we live all of life with God. Since the heart is so central to not only the scriptures, but also to our mission of what we're trying to do here in Franklin, Tennessee, we want to just recap Lloyd's message. Now, this video is going to recap Lloyd's message in four minutes. And so after we watch this video, we're like, Lloyd, that was killer. Why didn't you just play the video and just walk off stage? Okay, so... Uh, the, the Bible Project is the organization that creates these. And, and honestly, I, I would encourage you, anytime that you're just studying scripture or you want to learn more about it, go to the Bible Project. They have like these summary videos of different books of the Bible that are just spot on. And they made one about the heart, which I think just reviews for us what Lloyd was talking about last week. So I want us to look at this. 
For thousands of years, every morning and evening, Jewish people have prayed these well-known words as a way of expressing their devotion to God. They're called the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. And as for you, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your strength. We're going to look at the fourth key word in this prayer, heart, which in Hebrew is sometimes pronounced levav, or more often in a shorter form, lev. Now, different cultures throughout history have had different conceptions of how the human body works, and this is also true of the ancient Israelite writers of the Bible. They knew that the heart was an organ in the chest that sustains life. There's mention of a heart attack in the Bible, Naval, whose heart died inside of him and he became like stone. But the biblical authors talk about the heart in many other ways that might seem strange to modern readers, and that's because these Israelites had no concept of the brain or any word for it. They imagined that all of a human's intellectual activity takes place in the heart. For example, you know with your heart in the Bible. Your heart is where you understand and make connections. In the book of Proverbs, wisdom dwells in the heart. And your heart is what you use to discern between truth and error, like Solomon did when he was king. So the heart is where you think and make sense of the world, and it's where you do more. In the Bible, the heart is where you feel emotions. You feel pain in your heart, like Hannah did when she couldn't have any children. In fact, the phrase, a broken heart, comes from ancient biblical Hebrew. You also experience fear in your heart. Your heart can melt or be distressed. Your heart can even be depressed. But then, on the flip side, your heart is where you experience joy. In Hebrew, to be happy is to be good of heart or to have a heart of joy. So the heart is the generator of physical life. It's also the center of your intellectual and emotional life. And there's more. In biblical Hebrew, the heart is where you make choices motivated by your desires. So David had it in his heart to build a temple for God. Your heart is where your affections are centered. They're called the desires of your heart. And if you really want something and go after it, it's like what Nathan said to David, whatever's in your heart, go and do it. So then, in the Bible, the heart is the center of all parts of human existence, as in the well-known proverb, guard your heart because from it flows your whole life. Now the prophet Jeremiah believed that the human heart was fundamentally broken. He said, the heart of a human is deceitful above all, irreversibly sick. Who can even understand it? He had watched a whole generation turn away from God. They started sacrificing their children as if that were a good thing. So this is why in the imagination of the Hebrew prophets, the only hope for humanity is the total renewal of the human heart. Moses predicted that if Israel was ever going to love their God, their heart would need to be circumcised, which is a very vivid and surprising metaphor about removing evil and stubbornness from the human heart. David, after he committed murder and adultery, pleads with God to create in me a pure heart. The prophet Ezekiel hoped for a day when God would remove the heart of stone and give his people a new heart of soft flesh, which is very similar to Jeremiah's hope that God would write the commands of the Torah on the hearts of his people. And that brings us all the way back to the Shema. Every day, God's people are called to devote to God their whole body and mind, their feelings and their desires, their future and their failures. This is what it means to love the Lord your God with all of your heart. Great is how simple it is. It just took all of Lloyd's message. And again, if you'd see Lloyd, just say, hey, just show us the video next time. Um, so our terms for defining the heart then in these four quadrants are the heart is thoughts, emotions, and then we also had desires and choices. And we kind of separate desires and choices. We think those are two different things. Out of your desires, you then make choices. So 
thoughts, emotions, desires, and choices. So our definition of wholehearted life in Jesus, what does that look like? Wholehearted life in Jesus is when our thoughts, emotions, desires, and choices unite to find our deepest longings and greatest hope fulfilled in Jesus alone. So that's the definition of wholehearted life in Jesus, and that's what we're pursuing as a church to help people find, then we need to ask, what does wholehearted life in Jesus look like? Another way of saying that is, what, is, what are the characteristics of someone who is finding wholehearted life in Jesus look like? Ephesians 4. What does maturity look like in someone who is pursuing wholehearted life in Jesus? What does that look like, the characteristics the question that really, it's a really big question for us as a church. What is the kind of disciple that we're producing? You know, at the end of the day, what is, what is the outcome? So imagine, uh, the best way I can illustrate kind of characteristics or the way we would measure that or maturity of this is to just, just give you this analogy. Let's say we all work at a car assembly uh, plant, okay? We're all car manufacturer we work at a plant that is making, let's just say Corvettes, since we drive by the Corvette Museum on the way to, back from Michigan. So we're all responsible in this room for actually making a Corvette. So that is what we're trying to produce at the end of the assembly line. And let's just say at, at our company, we have a mission statement. And I made one up. I don't know if this is actually Corvettes, but we have a mission statement to build high-performance, iconic sports cars with dynamic performance right here in the USA. Doesn't that sound good? Like, we can get behind that, right, people? And then we have values, like as a company, like how we operate, how we do that. We have values. Now, here's the thing. If we're responsible, all of us are responsible for taking that mission and living out those values. And then, you know, around, around our, our company, we kind of have, you know, sleek words that we use. And we're like, hey, we're going to build uh, fuel-efficient cars, like fuel-efficient sports cars that are sleek and they're, they're aerodynamic and has tire, you know, the tire control is off the charts. Almost anyone could drive that. If we just kind of have like loose, vague characteristics then this is possibly what you could come up with at the end of your, your assembly line. Can everyone see that? So you have, you have this car that is kind of built with aerodynamics, and it's sleek, and it has great tire control. And you know what? The fuel efficiency on this bad boy is incredible, okay? Now what if we as the workers at the end of the assembly line, this is the product that we do? And the CEO comes down. He's just like, all right, guys, let me see the first Corvette that you guys made. And we, we show him this. What would be some problems with, with that conversation, do you think? It's not a Corvette. That's because Target didn't have any Corvette remote control cars. It was going to be a Corvette. But you're right. That actually does prove another point. Okay? It's not even the right car. It doesn't have Corvette on it. What's another thing? The obvious. Go obvious with me. It's not to scale. A human is not driving it. A human couldn't drive it. Now think about that. That's why we as a church need to be specific with the characteristics of describing what wholehearted life in Jesus looks like. Because we need to begin with the end in mind. We need to begin with the end in mind. Now think about this. This is, this is something my father-in-law has told Melissa and I over and over again. You need to parent with the end in mind. And that has so shaped our parenting because we're thinking about what is the thing that we're trying to produce by God's grace at the end of when they move out of our house, 
What do we want their characteristics and qualities and all those things to be shaped in them when they leave our house? Well, that's going to inform the decisions way back here when they're four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, because we have the end in mind. In the same way, we want to do this uh, today. We want to tangibly express what does wholehearted life in Jesus look like and give you some characteristics of that so that we can pursue together of reaching maturity, of, of seeing what that looks like in Jesus. So this is why it's so important because everything is going to be shaped by these characteristics. We are going to be pursuing the, these outcomes, these, this, this product of what our disciples look for. It's going to shape the things that we choose for a curriculum. It's going to shape the things of what we do in student ministry and children's ministry. It's going to shape how we reach out to the community. So everything we need to be doing is being geared around these four characteristics. They will fulfill and illustrate our mission as a church. And just like a Corvette illustrates and it fulfills the factory's mission, let's start building out what does this look like. So we are going to have an anchor scripture in every one. Then we're going to have a definition in every category. And then we are also going to tell a story of recent. These are all recent stories in the last two weeks that we have heard of people that are being transformed by Jesus in this, in this type of way. And these are the byproducts or the characteristics that are formed. So let's look at what does it look like if our thoughts are being transformed. Well, we believe that that looks like if your thoughts are being transformed and you're finding a whole heart of life in Jesus, we believe that you have a renewed mind. So turn with me to Romans 12. Romans 12. This is going to be our anchor kind of passage for, for this quadrant. Romans 12. Now, Romans up to this point, the first 11 chapters of, of Romans, if you've read through Romans, it's a very doctrine-heavy uh, building out of theology uh, in the first 11 chapters. But then he gets to verse 12, I guess to chapter 12, and in verse 1, he says, therefore. Now he's now, uh, out of our doctrine theology, he is, he's giving us a very practical guide of how we live life with God. So in verse 12, uh, in verse 2 of chapter 12, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. So verse 1, the way you worship now is not by sacrificing animals. It's not by you dying. It's not by something else. It's by you living a life that honors and worships God. Verse 2 then goes on to explain what transformation that happens. It's the Greek verb translated transformed, which our English word is where we get metamorphosis. So think about metamorphosis, a complete change from the inside out, a change that happens with the renewing of our mind. Renewal is something that already exists and is being renewed. It's, it's made new. It's like if you ever restored furniture. It's the same thing, but it's renewed. You're, you're scraping off the old and you're building on the new. God's grace to us is that he has given us, in very specific terms, his word for how to think, how to have a, a mind that is able to determine how do we live this life with him? How are we to view this world? Well, it comes through the lens of his scriptures to us. And so a renewed mind, we... Uh, submit ourselves to the word of God, but also the living word, which is Jesus. Jesus is the tangible expression 
of the living word to us of how we are to live. So let me give you a definition of renewed mind. A renewed mind is as God makes himself known to us through the written and living word, we are continually transformed by replacing the lies we believe with the truth he reveals. Let me tell you a story of, of, to illustrate what this would look like. Um, this last week, we heard a story of Andrea. And Andrea was telling us a story of how she came to faith. And she was, she was telling a story of, of how she grew up in the church. And she grew up in the church, but she honestly thought that the, she was responsible for making her way to God, for God to be pleased with her or for her to have a right relationship with God was based on what she did or didn't do. And she always felt like she was disappointing God. She felt like she could never do enough. She wasn't doing enough right. And she just felt this weight of, of that all the time. And then this guest speaker comes one Sunday morning and he's talking about the passage when Jesus is, is sitting down and, and this woman comes in and she's been so, so the forgiveness of Jesus and his, uh, the, the pro- proclamation of what Jesus is saying is so moves her that she ends up getting down and drying her tears on Jesus' feet. And, he, and she, he's related that to the gospel and the good news and the proclamation that you are not made right with God by your works and when we come to understand that we're so moved by that grace demonstrated that we want to pour out our hearts to God. And he then outlaid the gospel, the good news that Jesus has done everything that was required and that you cannot earn your way to God, but it's only through grace and his completed work. And she said the light bulbs went off for the first time as the word was communicated in that way. And she replaced the lies that she was believing about how to be made right with God with the truth of God's word and the living word in Jesus. And it started to inform how she lived. That's one example of what it means to have a renewed mind. So if that's in our thought life being transformed to a renewed mind, let's move down to emotions. What does, when our emotional life is being transformed, what does that look like? And if wholehearted life in Jesus, our emotions, if they're transformed, they actually start demonstrating in healthy relationships. You might be thinking, okay, Eric, how did you get from emotions to healthy relationships? Well, let me unpack this a little bit. Turn to Colossians 3, 12 through 14. Colossians chapter 3, uh, 12 through 14. He begins, now this is a, a letter to, to the, a specific church, and he's writing this letter. And this is, again, a very practical uh, example. He's giving a very practical, but it's almost therefore. He says, so... So in light of, of what, uh, we, what I've presented to you, this is how you are to live. Verse 12, this is where we'll pick up. As those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, and whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. So it's again renewal language 
But if you jump back to verse 2, in the beginning of that chapter, it says, set your minds on things above. So because your thoughts are being restored and coming from your mind, you then are transformed. The proclamation of the gospel, your identity has shifted. You are now chosen of God, holy and beloved. In light of your identity being changed, in light of that being changed, now what are you to do? Well, this is what you are to do. Put on, and then he gives us this list, a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, and bearing with one another. So because we're made right, and the proclamation of the, of the gospel is always the words of the good news of Jesus. It's you can be made right with God. And then it talks about Jesus and what he did on the cross to restore us. When our identity is changed, that not only, that changes everything of how we relate to God, ourselves, and one another. Now think about it this way. Before, where you may have in relationship with others been operating in a transactional way. If I do this for you, then you do this for me. Or to gain someone else's approval. I want you to think of me in this certain light, so I'm going to do these things to make you think of me in a certain way. Well, with our new identity, it changes even our emotional life. We are no longer insecure with God, but we have our security not based on our performance, but in whose? In Jesus's. And so our security actually begins to shape our love for others, how we live life with others, how we live life with God, and how we live life with ourselves is actually shaped by the gospel. So think, think about that. The ramifications of what he's saying is if your, identif- your identity has changed, you are now chosen and beloved uh, son and daughter of God, then you should live in this way. So how we live life with God always shapes how we live life with others. That is what we're, we're saying here. And, and then this heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience. It sounds a lot like Galatians 5.22, which is the fruit of the Spirit. There is fruit of this internal change that you've had of how you then live life with God. Now, don't miss this relational phrase as well. Just as the Lord forgave you, what are you to do? Forgive others. There's a byproduct. Like, you were forgiven so that you now put on this new identity. You will now, what? Operate with others in the same way God has operated with you. He's teaching us how to live with him and how to live with others. So it starts with an intellectual truth that Jesus died in my place. It starts with our thoughts that the gospel is proclaimed. I believe it. I understand it. And then it moves to our emotional life. There's no more condemnation. There's no more shame. I've been forgiven and restored. And then it transforms how we live with others. Our emotional life will always be felt by the people around you. Like that's a simple statement, but it's true. Our emotional life, if it's, if it's being transformed, will always be impacting our relationships with others. So the definition of a transformed emotion, emotion life in our heart is, is actually healthy relationships. Here's the definition. As our inner being is made whole with God, as being made whole with God, because it's a process, through faith in Jesus, we can begin to move towards wholeness in how we relate to God, ourselves, and others. Again, how we relate to God, ourselves, and others. Let me illustrate this with a, a story of, of a redemption that we've, we've heard just in the last couple of weeks. The story was, I grew up in the church, but I really struggled with feeling insecure with God. I tried so hard to earn others' approval. 
I ended up losing who I really was trying to become in a thought who others thought they wanted, I want, they wanted me to be. I felt a lot of shame and had a lot of broken relationships in high school and college. I felt like a huge disappointment with God. When I got married, I wanted to lead my spouse and family spiritually, but I didn't know how. What I realized is that I didn't really understand grace and I didn't really understand the fullness of the gospel. Through having kids, this has shown me the simplicity, the beauty, and the depth of the gospel, and it has shaped how I live life with them. God has replaced the lives of shame in my life, and I have found new freedom in Christ. How that person lived with God actually shaped how they lived with others. What they believed, when the lies were replaced with truth, it shaped them. It shaped how they lived with others. It shaped every area of their life. So if that's the transformation in our emotions, a byproduct or the characteristic is healthy relationships. Now, let me just clarify, it's a process. You're not just going to be like, oh, I have healthy relationships in every area. No, it's pursuing these, right? Then what does it look like in our desires? What does transformation it look like where the characteristics are shaped in our desires. As our desires are being changed by Jesus, what does that look like? We believe that that looks like we end up having a satisfied soul. Let me unpack this a little bit. John 7, if you want to turn to John 7, 37 through 38. Let me give you the context for John 7. John 7 takes place at the peak of the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, the Feast of Tabernacles is... Uh, uh, the kind of celebrating the harvest and remembering God's provision for Israel. When they were wandering the desert, God provided manna. And then in the desert, when they were thirsty, what did Moses do? He struck a rock. And then what came pouring out? Water. God provided those things for them. It was God who did that. Now, the interesting thing about what Jesus is going to claim here is that he is the living water. So for any, any uh, per, person there, sitting there, that, was, that knew the story, what is Jesus saying? I am the source of living water. What is he saying there? Who provided the water and the manna in, in the desert? God. So when he reads a statement, let me, let's just unpack this. Jesus stood and cried out saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And he who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. So what is Jesus saying here? Who's the source of living water? Yeah, but who did they think the source of living water was? God. So Jesus very clearly is claiming divinity here. Now, if you ever have a conversation with anyone that says Jesus never claimed divinity, I just there's so many passages like this that Jesus very clearly says, I am the only one who can satisfy your soul. Now think about this. This is, you know, Psalm 42 would have been in their mind. If this deer pants for in streams of, of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. Jesus is saying, if any of you is thirsty, bring to me your thirsty soul. So the question I would have for all of us, who can satisfy your soul? Now, but how many of us try to satisfy our soul in so many different ways? I mean, this desire quadrant gets down to the very motivations for why you would pursue things. 
It gets to the very longings of your heart. But the reality is, is in a lot of different uh, parts of the quadrant, like renewed mind, like I can, I can replace lies with truth. Like I can, I can probably do a little bit of that or make some progress in that. I could probably make some progress in healthy relationships. I can go to counseling and figure out how to have, you know, healthier relationships or understand my family. Like you can make some steps in each of these. But when you get down to desires and you talk about satisfying your soul, I can't do it. It points to our need in so many different ways. I mean, think about in our culture, how many people are trying to fill their soul with temporal things. So they think, okay, if I just change my job, that's going to satisfy my soul. Or if I, if I just move to a different place, like Franklin, Tennessee, that's going to satisfy my soul. Or if, I, if I, we get a new house, or we move schools, or da-da-da-da-da. Or if I just... If I just had more money, or if I just had friends that liked me, or if I had people on Facebook or Instagram, or, or just if I was just, if I was, could just get this, this group of friends, if I could just be better at sports, then people, then I would get to this place. And I'm telling you, the temporal things of this world will never satisfy your soul. C.S. Lewis has this great quote, if you search for satisfaction in the temporal things of this life and yet none can be found, it shows us that we were not made for this world, but there is one far greater than that we need to seek our satisfaction from. That's a paraphrase. But that's exactly what we're talking about here. Is the question we actually need to be asking in this this quadrant is, is like, why was I motivated to do this? Like, why did I blow up at, at, the, at the kids or my spouse? Or why, why was I so concerned, like, who liked that and didn't like that on social media? Or why did I post that? It gets to the desire quadrant. So the thing that we actually need is a satisfied soul. In a world of discontentment, in a world of thinking that there is life found in things, Jesus is saying, no, the only source of living water that can satisfy your soul is who? Him. And so we... Many of us live so unaware of our longings and desires. But when we actually realize that our longings and desires can be most satisfied in him, we see our desperation for him. So definition of satisfied soul. As we become more aware of our deepest desires and offer them to Jesus, we discover that what we long for most deeply is most fully satisfied in him. Let me tell you a story of transformation of, of someone sharing this in the last two weeks. Inwardly, I had huge unmet longings to have peace, rest, true community, approval, acceptance, and love. Now you hear this. He's, he's identifying longing. He's longing for these things. To have peace, rest, true community, approval, acceptance, and love. But these felt almost impossible to get. So I would continue to try to fill these longings with the most convenient and easy ways to temporarily satisfy them. But God saw through my facade. He knew that I needed something deeper than what I could get or just following the rules or my moments of false satisfaction. While I was busy living in the moment, God was bringing people along in my story, pointing out truth and showing me and walking alongside me in difficult seasons. God showed me that I can only truly be satisfied when my desires, longings are rooted in him. I was made to live a life where my identity was rooted in him, and that is the full life. So I think what he was saying here is is that he was longing for intimacy, but he was searching for it in all the wrong places. And it left his soul thirsty. 
But when he understood his desires were actually pointing to the only thing that, that God actually could satisfy, it started to change the questions that he was asking or where he was looking for fulfillment. See, if anyone is thirsty, Jesus says, come to me and drink. So if that's our desires and what that looks like, the characteristic that looks like when our desires are transformed, let's look at what uh, happens when our choices are transformed by Jesus. What does that look like to have wholehearted life in Jesus? What does choices get transformed into? It's active faith. We believe the characteristic of someone living out choices that glorify God actually points to active faith. Matthew 7, 24 is the, is the a key verse that we would point to here. There's many like it. Let me read this for us. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts in them, may he be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. Did he build his house on the sand? No. <laughs> this is a song. Okay, I was just joking around with you. Okay, so he didn't build his house on the sand. He built his house on the rock. Who is the rock? Yeah, he's talking about himself again here. And the conclusion, this comes from the Sermon on the Mount. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is actually redefining what it looks like to live a righteous life with God. The conventional teaching about God's kingdom, it's upside down. He gave specific instructions of how to pray and how to live and how to be the people of God. And then he gets to the end. He says, don't just let these words pass by without them changing you. Don't be a person who sees, he sees himself in the mirror and then goes off and forgets what he looks like. Like, hear these words and do what? Obey them. You remember when we talked about um, uh, Lloyd and Ecclesiastes, talked about the Shema, and it was actually in the video. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. That word hear, what it, in the Hebrew, is there a word for obey? Hear and obey are the same. So when you think about that, you know, if you hear the words of God, what do you do? You obey the words of God. And this is the type of, of church that we, we want to be. We want to be a, a people that lives this out. Think about when we were in our Acts series and we get to the, Ethiop, the passage of the Ethiopian who says, what prevents me from getting baptized? I believe. What present, prevents me? And we had a, a baptismal up here and we said, anyone up here, what, what prevents you from being baptized? You've heard the gospel proclaimed, what prevents you? And that day we were here for four hours beyond what we were normally here for. Because people were responding, what? To the word of God being proclaimed and they were obeying it. What would it look like for us to be a people who don't just hear the words of God, who don't just receive good teaching on Sunday mornings, but actually do what? Live that out. Let me tell you a story of what this has looked like in um, a couple in our, in our body. Paul and Fran, who are sitting right here, first service. They began um, asking the question, God, what do, you, what do you have for our family? What does this look like? And they picked up these books on adoption and foster, foster care. And they just started reading and they started seeing God's heart for just those who are forgotten, the least of these. And they, they started just to be so impacted by the truth of God's word. And it started to stir them in their, in their emotions of, God, like, are you, are you having us do this? And so they start, they're working through and processing. And then what is it, the desire for our family to, to live this out? So what would that look like to, for us to be foster care? Like for, open up our home to someone who needs it? And as they stepped into this, let me just read to you what they said. They said it tapped into our desires for our family. 
It's been something we've been praying about for a while. And, and last year we were reading this book and the Lord was stirring in our hearts. And we read it as a family and he started stirring in our kids' hearts. And we decided that this is where God was leading us as a family. And so we made that step. We went through the classes with open hands and we said, God, we want to be tangible hands and feet of you, Jesus, to these kids. And just a couple months ago, they were placed with an 18-month-year-old girl. And their home has never been the same. Now, they were busy before. They had travel soccer. They had all sorts of different things going on. But as they walked through this process, they said, God, we believe that one of the things that you're asking us to do is open up our homes. And I just talked to them this, this morning, and they're saying, God, Eric, I'm telling you, the gospel has never been more real in our house because I understand adoption and what that looks like and what God has done for us. And it's so tangible with our kids. Every day they're praying because they're so dependent. It's just changing our family. That's what it looks like for us to live out in active faith. So if this is wholehearted life in Jesus, let me just recap what we're saying. We're saying the characteristics of someone who's pursuing wholehearted life in Jesus as a disciple to glorify God, finding their satisfaction in him. What does that look like? We believe it looks like a renewed mind. Healthy relationships with God, yourself, and others. Satisfied soul and active faith. That's why we said we were made for this. We look at the values of our church. The values are who we are. When we look at the mission of our church, it's, it's what we do. And then these four outcomes are what it looks like as, as we live this out. These become the characteristics of of each of us and, and what this looks like for growth in these areas. And the thing I would just ask is, aren't these the things that you want for your neighbor, for your kids, for your grandkids, for your fellow students when you go to school? Aren't these the things you want in your own life? I would argue this is what we all need. It's what we're made for. We we weren't meant to live compartmentalized lives where we separate our lives out and say, okay, God, this is your little space over here, and then the rest is me trying to figure out life on my own. That's not what we were meant for. We weren't meant to just live out of just one or two parts of our hearts. We were meant to live with all that we are, with all that God is. It starts by bringing our thoughts before God and being renewed by his truth and, and seeing how Jesus lived as a living word and Bringing, bringing how we react and how we, how, what we're feeling and, and, and being transformed in our relationships of how we live out and coming to him with any discontentment we have or where we're searching for life apart from him. Of asking these questions, God, what was I doing in that moment? What was I longing for? What was the desire that needs to be shaped by you and your truth? And then how do I live out in this act of faith? The thing that I want to point out is this so clearly points out for our need for Jesus. Let me show you. Eric, it would have been a lot easier if you just went renewed mind, active faith, healthy relationship, satisfied soul, if you just went that way. But you, you didn't. Why didn't you do that? Well, there's a reason why we talk about it in the way and the order that we do, because we believe there is kind of a pathway to the heart of kind of what, what spurs in this. And the reason why we talk about it in this way is, is it points to our need for Jesus. And let me show you this. It points to the cross. We need the cross, the work of Jesus in our life to renew our minds, to change how we live life with God, ourselves, and others. 
to satisfy our soul. And then when we get here, we cannot make choices that glorify God and live the life he calls us to without the spirit of God within us. It goes through the cross for us to live out these choices. We have to go through the cross to live that way. We can't choose it in ourselves. We cannot live the life God is calling us to without him. We can't love our neighbor as ourselves. We can't pray for our enemies and bless our enemies. We can't do any of those things that Jesus calls us to without him. It's impossible in our own strength. And it keeps coming back. This, the life that we're called to is a cross-centered life centered around the good news of Jesus and what he has done to empower us to live this way, to transform us from the inside out. And as we surrender to him and his work, we actually see that our lives are being transformed and the characteristics being developed as we live all of life with all of who God is, shaped by his work on the cross, empowered by the spirit. We begin living a different way. We see our hearts renewed. We see instead of our lives being compartmentalized and disintegrated and blown all apart and us just making decisions based on well, how we feel or what Lloyd was talking about last week, we start to see that Jesus is inviting us into this life where he is the center, where he is shaping and weaving and renewing and transforming us from the inside out. And that's the, that's the life that we want for our church. That's the life that we want for when we leave these four walls, that when we walk out of here, that it's, this transformation isn't just for us. This isn't just for us to draw closer to God. It's not just about ourselves. It's how we live in this world. It's how we live next to our neighbor, next to our fellow students at school. It changes how we live in relationship. It changes what we're our identity centered in. It changes our choices that we make. It changes the very fabric of our being, but not just for ourselves, because we believe others need this life in Jesus. We believe others need to experience what Jesus can do in their lives. And how does that happen? By us helping them. Helping them find wholehearted life in Jesus. And ask the band to come back up. And as we do, as we close, I want to remind you of like how well these characteristics describe Jesus and who he was and who he is. Because the goal of our transformation is to become more and more like Jesus. Jesus embodies a renewed mind. He was the Word made flesh. He embodies healthy relationship. His whole life, he didn't come to be served, but to serve others and give his life as a ransom to many and love in that way. He embodies a satisfied soul, for he himself is the living water. He embodies an act of faith, for he never once failed to obey his Father fully and completely and surrendered to his Father in all things. Our world needs truth. In a culture of half-truths and lies, people need to be transformed in their relationships. Think of how many of us have suffered from broken relationships in our world in suffering from broken relationships. Our world needs to redefine what Intimacy with others looks like. Instead of social media promising connection, it cannot deliver. What if we started paving a way for what it looked like to actually be present with other people? 
not in a transactional way, not so they just approve of us, but to actually be present with people and be so concerned with them in their hearts. What would it look like if we were a church that didn't base our identity on what we look like or our possessions or what we own or where we are in our status and careers or the amount of sports we excel at or the grades that we get? What if we stopped looking for places in our temporary lives that wouldn't satisfy? What would it look like if we started making choices where it wasn't informed out of lies or emotionally out of shame, but we started making choices that were informed because Jesus was transforming every area of our life and informing everything through his word. We would be a different people, collectively, individually, where God has placed you. And that's what we want for our church. That's what we want for you, and that's what we want for people who are outside these four walls. And so may we step into that as Jesus is the king of our hearts. Would you stand with me? I want to pray with us before we sing this song. Father, we come to you in this moment, realizing that we cannot do any of this on our own, but we are in desperate need of you. We need you and we surrender to you in all things, in all ways, with all that we are. Jesus, we respond to you this morning. We respond to the work that you're doing, the work that you're calling us to, and the work that is ahead. May we live all of life with you. Would you unite our hearts in you, Jesus? Amen.